Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast with the NB's top 250 movies of all time, and sometimes the bottom 100 as well. This week we're kicking off our Halloween coverage, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Spooky. Thank you. How are, how are, how are, how are you? I'm, I'm good i'm i'm think i think i'm as good as i can be for the discussion that we are we are about to have we have two fantastic guests uh, with us today first of all the fantastic dr bernice murphy how are you bernice i'm very well thank you very much darren and hello andrew and hello joey ah. and as bernice mentioned we also have the fantastic joey kyo how are you joey i'm sorry for this <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes because um what we normally do for Halloween is we, because there are very few movies on the top 250 that we classify as horror movies and quite a lot of terrible horror movies on the bottom 100 that we classify as horror movies, we normally do one of each. Um, so this year we were going to have to do Alien and we'll be covering Alien next week. But for the bad movie, I decided... I'm sorry, I thought we were recording Alien. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it was like a 50% chance that it was going to be Alien or, or, or Max. I actually forgot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, oh. <laughs> all right. So throwing it right over Alien to Joey. I would yeah. apologize for Alien. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. It's so good. No, no. I started. Yeah. I I got it like immediately when it was like kind of. I think Darren made some comment about the quality of the movie as well. I was like, oh. I guess he's an aliens guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Cameron fan in the house here. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but okay, so yes, we are talking about Manos, the Hand of Fate. And the reason why we're doing that is like, normally I, I kind of like, I basically get in touch with Bernice and Joey and I'm like, how'd you like to cover this terrible movie from the bottom 100? And they very obligingly say, sure, let's talk about The Wicker Man. Um, but this year I decided to throw it open democratically. I said, look, you guys, here's the list of all the horror movies on the bottom 100. Have your pick of them. And I think it was Joey who kind of immediately seized on Manos, the Hands of Fate. Now, I know that some of that choice was, I think, the process of elimination. So it was ruling out, you know, things like the human centipede or things like the fog, which I think Bernice described as pledge the this. most boring movie in the history of mankind. Yes, pledge this or the hottie and the naughty, the other great horror movies on the, mo- on the bottom 100. But Joey, what was about Manos that kind of made you say, that's what we need to do? So my husband has been talking about this movie for years and funnily enough, when I told him, oh, we're going to do it for the podcast, the, just his face just turned and he said, what? He said, you mean you're going to watch it? And he called it dry, which doesn't mean um, without alcohol because we don't drink. We are straight edge kids. But uh, no, what he meant was he'd seen it through MST3K. So he was like, why would you oh. watch that? normal in other words and bless him he tracked down a blu-ray for me because some guy years ago um he got permission from whoever's still alive i think it's the kid is still alive and he restored it because he found the old film by chance like the actual film when he got a load of canisters and i don't know kind of like a storage wars thing you got the debbie cuts (laughs) it must be i mean i don't know what i watched it didn't look as as bad as the child (laughs) yeah well, it is redubbed this. <laughs> oh, we, we'll come back. There's a lot to on back there. But yeah, I think you're mentioning Sorry. that like it's it's Ben Solvey is the 26 year old Florida State film grad who found the print, as you mentioned, decided to restore it. That's yeah, the so one. It, it, yeah, it does have a Blu-ray quality cut. How was that? It was. Do you know what? I thought it looked all right. I mean, obviously, the editing, as I'm sure we'll discuss, is just all over the place. But when you compare it to something like The Room, it definitely looks better than that do you know what i mean it doesn't look like a student film it looks like somebody really cared 
at some stage. Now, whether it was him when he was restoring it, I don't know. But I had to look online to compare what it's supposed to look like. And my God. So did you guys all watch a really fuzzy version? Yeah. And the aspect ratio was strange. Uh, yeah. Did everybody else find this? That it, that it was it was very it was kind of like a box. It was like it was supposed to be shown and kind of like a television. Academy yeah, radio. I just watched it on YouTube, so I, I just look forward to the ads, ads that broke it up, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they whatchamacallit. There because there's a few there's a few versions like um yeah, I think you uh, Joey, you mentioned mystery um oh science damage. Science theaters are three thousand. Um I think there's another there's one a Rift Tracks on one as well. Amazon. Yes, Rift Tracks is the one on Amazon. Which we also have to talk there's a lot of baggage. This movie comes with a lot of baggage to talk about. Um but it is like we, we should mention just in quickly for listeners. Um the movie is like so much about this movie. The copyright management of it was, um, let's say, lackadaisical, uh, because I believe up until 1969, you were required by law to have a copyright plate in the movie in order to assert a copyright on it. If you didn't, the movie did not have copyright and was in the public domain. Now, to be fair, we should note that this was also the case with Night of the Living Dead. George Romero's 1968 film also omitted the copyright plate and therefore entered the public domain. Um, So, you know, this isn't a problem of itself. It just perhaps points to a larger pattern of behavior or quality or attention to Was, wasn't Night of the Living Dead kind of rough and ready though I mean I mean kind of the I don't don't know is the word kind of like punk or gonzo indie. like indie an, yeah yeah exactly yeah so, I, I, I want to actually talk about that with with Bernice maybe later on when we talk about this movie and its place in like history and horror and indie cinema in America Bernice is wincing as I say this she does look terrified so Bernice what about your so what was I assume you have seen or had seen Manos before, or did you go in kind of blind? No, I went. I went in blind. I I have a colleague. Uh, shout out to my colleague Sam, uh, James Joyce expert and also fan of Manos: The Hand of Fate, who had been telling me to watch it for quite some time, but I'd never gotten around to it. So um, I'd heard of it, but I'd never felt any great urge to track it down. So uh, it, it's filled in a, a gap in my, I suppose, filmography. Um, I suppose it's a good thing that's been filled. Is it a good thing I saw the film? That's another question. <laughs> it's like Joyce, a lot of people feel intimidated by it. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. Like yeah. Maybe it's there's like a certain vocabulary and a framework that, that really you need to get it, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm not a Joycean, yeah. so maybe that's why, why the film maybe didn't work quite as well on me. Yeah, yeah, I think I so. Mean, that is Senator David Norris's other big passion. They don't cover it as much. It doesn't get as much media press, but he is a big Manos head. Oh, every time you see Manos hand of fate, it's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're cornered for an hour and a half just on, on the topic. He's got a lot to say about Torgo. And about Absolutely. Torgo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Torgo! Uh, <laughs> Torgo! Uh, but An- Andrew, what about yourself? Because I'm actually curious. Was this a movie you had any familiarity with before we My- covered it? My friend Declan Kybert um, uh, uh, told me to watch it. Um, uh, we're getting a lot of Joyce references in. Um, you could no, see it as a metaphor for British colonialism, I feel, you know, if you dug into it deeply. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it is Declan who writes the stuff about Joyce. I think he has a brother who does other things. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I, I didn't know what this was. My only knowledge of it was um, text from Darren Mooney. <laughs> it's like, let's do Manos. It's like, cool, no context, great. <laughs> Going in blind. 
How was yeah, that? Yeah. I, well, well, we'll probably cover it in the spoiler zone, but just your initial impression going in blind. What was it like with no expectation, no weight, no kind of understanding? I thought this, this was- can't be the movie, and and I I think Joey kind of points out that there is the 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 Blu-ray, so maybe the, the, the this isn't perhaps how it was intended. What is this kind of the what was released theatrically, or like I don't know. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this very uh, very briefly. Okay. Then. The the origin story behind Manos the Hand of Fate, and anybody who's familiar with it probably has like some a lot of this will be very familiar because it's it's kind of soaked into urban legend. But basically, this is the uh, brainchild of Harold P. Warren, known as Hal, to his friend. Yeah, he's yeah. in it, isn't he? He's in it. He writes. He directs. He does absolutely everything on it. Um, and basically, he was very active in the El Paso theater scene. Um, and he was a he was an inventor. He was a man of great ideas. And to pick an example, one of those ideas is while watching his children, Wendy and Joe, play with Legos in the basement, he came up with the idea of creating giant cement Legos that could be used to build real houses. And he called them super blocks. Unfortunately, that idea never really got off the ground, but it gives you the idea, the kind of sense of what we're working with here. So one day um, he was he was a working actor, jobbing actor. He worked on the TV show Route 66 and he met a man named Sterling Siliphant. And Sterling Siliphant is notable because he's the only person we'll be talking about in the context of this movie who has won an Oscar. Um, they were having tea together. Um, they're having coffee together. And Siliphant was talking about Hollywood and making movies and how difficult and how hard it was. And Warren said, you know what? Making a movie really isn't that hard. Anyone could make a movie. He could make one. So, and I can't find the actual terms of the bet anywhere online. But apparently Warren bet Siliphant that he could make an entire movie from conception to completion and have it released in theaters um, for, you know, without any insider knowledge or any outside assistance. That was the bet. He did win the bet, technically speaking, to be absolutely clear. And we should note that the first draft of the plot was written on a napkin right then and there in that coffee shop. That is where that idea began. Um, Warren was also famously a fertilizer salesman and managed to make this on a budget of $19,000 with a camera that could only shoot 32 seconds of silent footage at a time. Perhaps. Yes, that explains a lot about how this movie um, looks. Explains (laughs) most of this. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it it was released theatrically, Andrew, to answer your question. Um, It had. I feel like that's a kind of boast that I've probably foolishly made (laughs) at some point and never properly been called out on it, but have just upset people. And having a a conversation about actors and saying, like, I'm I'm sure, I I, I think I might have prefaced it with, like, I'm sure it is a lot of work, but also, like, there, there are a lot of people who could do it. People. People often come in and just kind of have a natural talent for it. And then there's loads of people who work really hard and are still terrible. Um, that it's not it's not kind of like when, when you're talking about kind of... Anyway, sorry. It was me talking about something that I had no clue about, but wouldn't back down. Um, yeah. But you, so, you didn't go out and make I didn't end movie. up making a movie, no. No, no. okay. Uh, thankfully. Um, and like convincing there was a black tie premiere of this held in the Capri Theater in El Paso, Texas. And like the mayor and the local sheriff all showed up. And apparently the cast and crew had to sneak out about 20 minutes in uh, when the laughter and the groans began in the crowd. Um, it did also play at drive-ins as well. 
Then it was promptly forgotten, disappeared entirely from the radar until, as Joey has mentioned, I believe in late 1992, um, somebody working on Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is a show that riffs on bad movies, uh, managed to dig it out of a literal box full of copyright-free movies that they could use as source material. The episode aired in January 1993, and the movie kind of immediately cemented itself as one of the worst movies ever made. Um, it was at one stage the top of or the bottom of this list that we are covering. Um, it was also voted for by Entertainment Weekly as the worst movie of all time in 2005 as well. Um, but it has kind of amassed a kind of a cult following. So just Joey, like in terms of you mentioned having seen the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version, what was it like watching it dry without that what did it feel like watching it without that commentary as a movie as an object could you have the experience that andrew had of kind of like detaching from that well i mean i took a note about 10 minutes in which was is this the horror part (laughs) because i was waiting for it to turn into a horror movie like the score it there's so much going on the score is so jaunty and it just takes over in certain moments obviously the adr is terrible like I have watched MST3K so long ago. And I mean, Torgo was kind of like a running joke with MST3K, which was pretty funny. So I was waiting for Torgo to show up. And then when he showed up, I was like, no, I don't remember it being this bad. <laughs> like it, it is, because I love The Room. I'm a big Room fan. Um, but I yeah. think I think The Room is, is kind of easy to watch or at least easier than this. Like this is only something like 74 minutes and it feels long. Like, it really does feel long. Extremely long. I mean, Alien's over nearly two hours and it it zips by. You know what I mean? So it was just... Yes, yes. But it's, um, it kind of has to be seen to be believed, to be honest. All right. Before we jump into the three questions, then, what about Bernice? Your, your first experience, do you feel richer for having seen it? Like, outside of the checking it off the kind of checklist of yeah. things kind of horror experiences to have um no i mean i mean as a sort of a horror completist i'm glad i've seen it i i mean i think you have to give people credit for making a film under such circumstances um but i also kept thinking you know of that you were saying uh you know the bet anyone could make a film i kept thinking that when you said that of that line in jurassic park you know jeff goldblum says you know they were so about making the dinosaurs they want they were so concerned with seeing if they could do it they didn't stop to ask themselves should they do it and that's ultimately how i feel about manos the hand of fate um you know fair play to them and um, they made something unique but sometimes unique is terrible um So I suppose my takeaway from this was I think there are much better bad films with which to spend your time. Like I kept thinking I'd much rather be watching Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast, which is an incredible quote unquote bad film. That's kind of a work of genius on a lot of levels. Whereas I was intrigued by this to start with. But like Joey said, after about 10 minutes of driving and then we'll we'll get into it, I'm sure. But um, it, it manages to be tremendously boring with a very short running time. Which, which, given that so much is wrong with it on a, on a, a craft level, is kind of impressive in its own way. So um, I did wonder at times it, it felt almost like um, like a, a, a modern day parody or something. I felt almost was I watching like a really unsuccessful SNL sketch or something like that at times. Um, so again, I don't know if that's to its credit or not. But um, yeah, I have... Um, mixed but mainly negative feelings about this but i will say it's better than the remake of the wicker man that i was made to watch last time last halloween for you and it's a lot shorter i I apologize for that it's a lot shorter i thought you were gonna say so um i thought you were gonna say the remake of blood feast 
Because <laughs> as soon as you said Blood Feast, I was like, I oh, have no, to watch I, that I, remake. <laughs> I haven't, haven't inflicted that. I would much rather watch the original Blood Feast, which is one of the most entertaining afternoons I've ever spent in a cinema. I would recommend it to anybody. So, Is it more progressive than Wicker Man? <laughs> Less. <laughs> Neil abuse Wicker well. Man. <laughs> I, th- I think Mike from this film would fit in well. Would, would get on well with Nick Cage's character in because um, he's always basically telling his wife to shut up, isn't he? Yeah, really unpleasant guy. <laughs> like, and played by the writer and director as well. And you kind of wonder how what level of awareness, if any, exists of this. Like in Mike P. Warren, sorry, in Harold P. Warren's version of the script, is Mike the hero, the misunderstood hero who, if we just listened to him, we would solve we'll, this problem. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that, I guess, later yeah, on. But I, I don't really understand the the like character, like in 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 this movie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. All right. I, I get the sense. Then we will probably jump in to talk about the movie. So we'll, before we go, three questions to get us all started. So, Bernice. Do you think Manos, the hands of fate, and I feel the need to stress the level and aptitude involved here, the title translates as hands, the hands of fate. Um, do you think that Manos, the hands of fate is one of the worst 100 movies ever made? Does it deserve its place as the third worst movie ever made? I mean, I think it, it's probably got to be in the top, you know, 100. I suppose it depends on how you, what are the worst, like, like you know, what is it, something by Lenny Riefenstahl for other reasons probably means because it's actively promoting fascism, you know. So I would say that's worse uh, on a human level, on a philosophical level. But in terms of sheer ineptitude, yeah, it, it has to rank pretty highly. Yeah. And also for being a boring bad film, which in my, one of my, you know, is like the worst crime a bad film can commit is to be tremendously boring as well. And as we mentioned, only about 70 minutes long and feels interminable. We had a discussion last week about like bad films and shortness. And my argument, which I think I feel vindicated this week, is if a movie is bad enough, the runtime cannot be short enough. Um, But Joey, what about yourself? Is this one of the worst 100 movies ever made? Well, like Bernice said, I mean, object. it's hard to be objective with this kind of thing, because obviously there are definitely movies that are more offensive um, and that, you know, promote terrible things. But yeah, it is. It, it, it's almost incredible how inept it is. <laughs> like the story makes no sense. The performances make no sense. You know, they've got all the audio issues, all the visual issues. So I'd say it has to be up there. But Bernice is right. There's a difference between a, a fun bad film and just a bad bad film. Um, and I'd much rather be watching something like The Room than this because I, I don't really think there's a whole lot to this. And I think... I mean, obviously, he was just trying to prove a point, which kind of makes it a little bit worse. It feels quite cynical. You know, at least Tommy Wiseau was was trying to do something. You know, what he was doing, we'll probably never know. But he was he was trying, whereas this guy was kind of just like, huh, whatever. Like anyone like, can make a movie. Exactly. It was kind of just like two fingers to everybody. So and I mean, I don't know. He didn't really prove his point because it's not a very good movie. <laughs> but top 100 definitely. Yeah, has to be. And Andrew, you appear to be muted at the moment. Um, we're having our own ADR um, issues here. Oh, we'll, we'll, it's we'll the master. But I, I didn't the mute myself. For us. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, I got cut out of the the meeting in, in entirely. First, it kind of stalled, and then I and then I left the meeting. I came back in, and then I was muted. Maybe it's one of those things where you're automatically muted if you, if you enter the the, the meeting. Maybe that makes sense. Anyway, welcome back to Zoom. <laughs> we talk about um, 
the art of podcasting yes. over Zoom. But yes, yeah. Andrew, would you consider this to be one of the worst 100 movies ever made? I'd like to talk a bit like in this movie's defense. I think we, we talked about the music. I think the music is like entirely inappropriate, but some of it's kind of echoic. Like the stuff with, with, where, Torgo, where you see Torgo's the master. Torgo's theme, yeah. And yeah. Torgo's team. Like it's very uh, you 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 um I I I watched a um a puppet version of 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 this is called of Man the of hands, the hands of felt. Yes. And it 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 wasn't great but I love puppets. Um I just find them inherently hilarious and 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 but they put in the music and I was like oh yeah yeah the music. Another thing I think um Torgo is making like in, in, incredible choices. Like they're 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 bad and it's too much. But I I think if you had somebody to rein him in, like you you it, it's 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 certainly not a boring kind of um, performance um, in a very boring movie. Um, you kind of look at him and 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 you're like, uh, wow, <laughs> look, look at him, look at him doing that. Um, <laughs> There, and, there are two things we should probably mention up front about Torgo. Oh, he's 100% done terrible things, right? No. I, I'm just guessing that by, by the tone of your voice and by, like, Torgo. No. Um, no, we have this thing on the podcast where, yes, whenever I interrupt Andrew to say we need to talk about something, it's like, stop talking and we will come back to it. No, no, no. Um, John Reynolds, the actor who played Torgo, first of all, he was on LSD for the entire film shoot, apparently. Um, which perhaps explains a lot <laughs> of that. And the yes, yeah, and the, the second <laughs> tragic uh, bit that we should probably talk about up front is that he did take his own life between the production of the movie and the release of the movie as well. Um, so oh God, that's, that's context. Uh, yes, and it's it's worth kind of acknowledging there. But yeah, Torgo. Oh, I feel terrible now. I thought you were like because normally when you when when you introduce something like that, it's that he's like I don't know. Done, um, no, had, no, like no, a, no, 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 no. Uh, oh, well, like at least he was on LSD. Um, like the, I, presumably he enjoyed the, the 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 kind of making of the movie. Plus, I I I I I think he's one of the better things in it. Well, by all accounts, if I'm like, honest, like we talked about, like Jackie Naiman, who played Debbie, as being one of the ambassadors for the movie later on, and we'll talk about like the battle over the movie's legacy maybe later on. But she's talked about how like her big memory of the shoot is him being really pleasant and cheerful to work with. Like, he was one of her fondest memories, which is quite quite nice there, um, just in terms of being heartening. Uh, That's why they chose to stay there. <laughs> Torgo just comes out and he seems incredibly charming. Um, He's great yeah. with kids. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, like, he did have a lot working against him. Like, he had that crazy, the crazy costume and those legs, like, which were supposed yes. to make him look like some sort of demon and it just kind of yeah. didn't work out, like... Yeah. He he was he looked like oh. he was in pain yeah, to me. Yeah. He he didn't he? He looked like he was going, "Oh my god, yeah. how long do I have to stand here for?" Uh. Wearing these things. Cuz like yeah. the guy who'd been dragged off the street against his own will and told, "You have to be in this film now." Like he honestly, he just looked quite Yeah, like we'll give you we'll give you a sandwich <laughs> if you appear. <laughs> like what? I've got men over my head here. Yeah. yeah. We should mention, by the way, like when you mentioned compensation for this, uh, nobody who worked in this movie was compensated. We kind of um, say oh, that um, he... Oh dear, what's happened? Oh, we lost Andrew. Can anyone hear me? We can hear you. Can you hear us? You're frozen and sideways again, Andrew. Who's really on the LSD? Yeah. Well, us, uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't make sense. But 
okay, so yeah, just just because I think Joey mentioned compensation there. Uh, nobody who worked on this movie got compensated. Um, he promised them, he apparently promised something like 3,000% of the total box office gross uh, split across the various actors, because of course he did. Um, the only people who did receive compensation for their work on the movie were Jackie Naiman, who's the daughter of the actor who played the master. She received a new bicycle for her performance, which was very nice. And the dogs apparently received dog food while they were working. Um, those are apparently the only people who received uh, actual compensation for their work on this film. I'm, I'm going to say, like, I love dogs, but I don't think the dogs on this film did, like did earned their, yeah. their, <laughs> their food. Um, no, no. There were no Bill yeah. kind of Dracula or Cujo, you know. It wasn't that level. <laughs> yeah, there was no menace to... Well, yeah. I suppose, like, there wasn't meant to be with the poodle. Maybe they could have swapped him around. But they, sure, she showed up and she was just dragging him along. And she yeah. was like, oh, here he is. Like, the dog yeah, wasn't even mad. The dog wasn't mad about he, it. He seemed disinterested. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Peppy. Peppy the poodle. That was his name. Sorry, I, I took, four, took four pages of notes on this thing. I don't know why. I just It's import, important to record that in the film, the poodle is called Peppy. Peppy. Peppy the... A4, like, foolscap front and back. Yeah. The, um. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew has a small notebook. Um, Bernice has actually, <laughs> yeah. like, done the homework on this. And and for myself, I mean, from a technical standpoint, I think, yes, absolutely, this is one of the worst 100 movies ever made and released theatrically and certainly with a platform equivalent to what this has. I mean part of me wonders how much of its its position on the list is more due to the afterlife of it the fact that it is this kind of punchline in terms of being used by mst3k and what that sort of stuff uh, and how much of it is kind of like passed down information as opposed to people actively discovering it and thinking it's terrible i think famously the mst3k team have said this is their this is the worst movie they covered on the list uh, and to be clear so on their show and to be clear that includes things like santa claus versus the martian they have said, though, it's not the worst one they've watched. Apparently, it is at least better than Child Brides, the 1938 exploitation film that apparently they deemed not something that anybody ever wanted to be seen watching on television. Um, all right, then. And Bernice, is this one of the worst 100 movies you have ever seen, personally? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of nonsense, um, both as a fan and as an academic. So I, I would, yeah, it is definitely one of the worst films I've seen. Yeah. I like that's an. I love the unequivocal. It's just yes, yep. just straight comfortably, in here. Um, comfortably meets the low bar, and what's the opposite of exceeding something? Uh, you know, limbo's under. Yeah, kind of li- exactly. like yeah, proper. It slithers below that bar. Yeah. Um, and Joey, what about yourself? Is this one of whether wet or dry to use the euphemism? Is this one of the worst one hundred movies you have ever seen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure. I don't know. Many of them have kind of faded from memory, but this definitely was one of the hardest to endure, to actually sit through. Definitely. Um, and Andrew? Yeah, I, I, I would, absolutely. I think this is terrible. The, 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 um, it's a kind of a triumph, though, in a way, because we, 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 we say that, uh, like, like how, how, how much hubris it took to make this. But there is a movie that we're talking about in 2021. I looked at other 1966 movies and I think it was like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly was one I recognized. And um, I think it was like The 20,000 Feet Foot Woman. And I looked at like, like I know, I know like I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm no, um, I'm on a podcast about movies, but know nothing about movies. <laughs> um, but yeah, it did, it, 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 there, there is something kind of um, 
uh, re re remarkable about, I, I guess, it's it, it's staying power. We're still talking about it, that it's still sort of relevant. Um, but it's terrible, yeah. And for myself, I feel like I'm going to be mildly controversial here and say probably not one of the worst 100 movies I've ever watched or like I would personally consider, if only because I, I do think there's interesting stuff here. And even if that is the kind of hubristic stuff, it has that thing that I associate with and I don't want to use the term so bad it's good, but like interesting bad movies where it feels like you've been invited inside someone's kind of skull and you've been invited to see the world as they experience it. I think of like Birdemic is another movie like that where you're like, no human being thinks like this or behaves like this or would make choices like this. And then you see it. I kind of like what Joey mentioned with The Room, although I think this is slightly... This is perhaps less intense um, <laughs> as a representation of that. But it, it's a very odd, very esoteric movie. It is a movie that exists kind of through sheer force of will. And I kind of admire it for that on some level. I admire the fact that he actually managed to do it despite knowing absolutely nothing. And despite meeting limitations that at any point in the game, any sane person would go, this is not salvageable. We should not be doing this. Like, the point where he realizes the film will only record 32 seconds. That should have been, no, we're out. The point where he discovered it can't record sound. That should have been, no, we're out. The, the point at which he discovered that he only had eight days to do it. That, that should have been, yeah, we're out. The point at which he discovered that the lighting for the sets would not stretch more than a meter outside of the camera. Should have been, a, yeah, no, we're, we're done, we're not doing it the film kind of sticks with it and makes it happen regardless. I do think it's terrible. Um, I do think it's one of the worst made movies I've ever seen, but I kind of admire the fact that it, it powered through all of that through sheer, well, pettiness, I guess, but force of will and commitment to it. So I kind of, I feel like I'm going to be a bit gentle on it in that regard. Sorry, Bernice. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm doing my classroom, raising my hand job here. Um, <laughs> For the listeners who cannot actually see it, I'm raising a hand holding a pen. Um, just what you said there, it remind if you were inclined to be like pretentiously defend this film. <laughs> I'm not saying that you are. I mean, uh, but I'm saying if if if, if you if you are, um, it, it it reminded me of you know that what is that saying? Is it Dogma '95 where a group of like Danish art house filmmakers got together and decided we'll impose these deliberate formal limitations upon what we can do? So what was it? They had to tell the same story different ways, but they had to use natural light. There was there was like something like there was a whole list of things that they couldn't couldn't do. Maybe maybe the makers of Man of the Hand of Fate in their own crude Texan way in 1966 or whatever were doing a version of like Dogma 95, but didn't know it. That's my I'm trying my attempt to justify this film's existence. I actually I wrote down it's almost like an experimental art film. Like yeah. I reckon there are there are hipsters somewhere right now discussing oh, how yeah. this is the most brilliant film in the world and this is why and we all just don't understand it we're not deep enough because I mean if yeah, you think about the amount of hands exactly like think about the amount of hands in there what that symbolism could be <laughs> you know what I mean yeah I I agree with that point about kind of like it being a a, a sort of a um, experimental film. Um, or having that kind of feel. There, there were parts of it uh, reminded me of what um, I think it's Superstar, the the, yeah. the Karen Carpenter um, uh, story. I could like like. I saw that in the cinema. Is it Todd Haynes that did that? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was Todd Haynes. I think. 
Um, Probably the only time Todd Haynes has been mentioned, like in comparison to Manos, the Hands of Fate. But no, like again, it, 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 like like with the with the kind of uh, overdubbing and 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 kind of the the the, the sort of crappiness of it, I guess. Like, like I like um, the, the 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 Todd Haynes version of it more, obviously, and it's better, um, better music, I guess. Um, Sorry, uh, just to come back to what Bernice said there when she told that story, I was thinking of like the Five Obstructions, which is the Lars von Trier movie where he basically takes another director, uh, Jürgen Leth, and forces him to make the same movie five times with an increasingly surreal set of constraints imposed upon him. But like, this, okay, this is the thing where, and, and Bernice has set this up and is entirely right, this is the very pretentious arthouse nonsensey disappearing up various parts of my own anatomy argument in defense of this film. But is there an argument to be made? You're doing this already? I'm doing this already. (laughs) (laughs) Usually that's in the wrapping up. Is is there an argument to be made for this as like a moment in American independent cinema? Um, And particularly like this is why I'm kind of like Bernice. And when I throw this to Bernice, I'm not going to throw it with this movie. I think it's a general discussion to be had about horror cinema in America in general. But I think if you look at like the American, the history of American independent cinema as it's taught or as it's discussed, there's typically a focus on more prestigious stuff. And and it's ironic this movie was made in El Paso, like 900 miles and 25 years removed from the Austin boom that would give us like Linklater, uh, give us uh, Rodriguez, people like that. But like you look at the evolution of American independent cinema, and it happens through people like say. Um, George A. Romero and his work on Night of the Living Dead and his Living Dead movies. Um, it happens through another movie made and shot in Texas uh, less than a decade later about another family that turns down a beaten track and ends up in the wrong place. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those movies end up kind of like redefining what is possible in American cinema outside the studio system through self-financing, through strong visions and through the if you're being cynical, the low barrier to entry and the high reward for low investment that tends to come with horror movies. And we'll get into it in the spoiler zone. This is, I would argue, a very cynical version of that that does not work at all. But is there an argument for Manos, the Hands of Fate in that context as kind of like an early front runner of those kind of movies, just more inept, incompetent and, and all round terrible? Bernice? Um... Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and I think I think it's a much less interesting film and I think it's a much less influential film. I don't think anyone will be talking about Man Asked the Hand of Fate if MST3K, as Joey and yourself had mentioned. That's it. fair. It's, yeah, not, it's not an interesting... I don't think it's a particularly interesting film. But I have to admit, when I, when I was watching it, I couldn't help but think of, like, Her Carvey and Carnival of Souls, which is from... I believe it's 65. I might have gotten that wrong by a year or so. An incredible film made on a similar budget by a guy who had made industrial films, um, but with friends from, uh, I believe, the University of Kansas. And, uh, you know, very, very limited budget, very, very limited resources. But Carnival of Souls is uh, an exceptionally influential film. And there are bits that are clunky and there's back, you know, there's, there's certain characters that don't quite land. But it's a tremendously atmospheric film that has a power a really, a really incredible power that it stays with you, uh, and not just because it has a very dramatic organ score. Or I was thinking as well, watching this of um, Gordon Lewis's um, uh, One Thousand and One Maniacs. There's an exclamation mark in that because they're 
very, very maniacal, they've got an exclamation mark, which actually starts off exactly like this. And it's a film that is from 65, I think. It's a film that arguably <clears throat> is the first proper backwoods horror film uh, that led to the likes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, it's a much more coherent film. It's essentially Brigadoon, but um, with, uh, with uh, sort of undead Confederates who murder Yankees 100 years later <laughs> on the anniversary of their town getting um, getting uh, attacked by marauding Yankees. Um, so it's it's a film that um, it, I think it holds up much better. It's much more influential. You can trace it back much more directly as anticipating something that would happen, particularly in the 70s. I think Manos in its own way is is definitely part of that. But, you know, it, this is a film that I was trying to think had I ever read anything about Manos in any of the literature on horror films. And I've only ever come across it maybe in brief references to cult horror. But it, it it's a film that, so far as I'm concerned, maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, I'm very happy to be corrected hasn't really been really been looked at because it's not that... And sometimes films aren't looked at just because nobody's got around to looking at them yet. But I think here, once you get past the story of the film and the you know the, 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 the badness of it, there's actually not that much there. There are much more interesting films uh, being made in and around the same time and much more influential films. So now that's, that's entirely fair. Like, it did disappear for 25 years. Um, yeah, that, justifiably. Yeah. <laughs> Like, no, no, but I mean, it, they couldn't find, like, um, Jackie, like, the Naaman family actually looked for prints of it and could not find it, like, to show us, like, family jokes, to be like, look at this crazy movie Dad made, and nobody could get a hold of it in those 25 years. Sorry, Joey, I cut you off. No, all I was going to say was it doesn't even really have a cult following. Like, it doesn't have something like The Room or, like, Troll 2. Like, I mean, are people, I don't think people are having screenings of it, even though it is more widely available now, or at least not to my knowledge anyway. Like people have heard of it, but have they seen it? You know, are they gathering in groups, you know, to see it? I don't know. I do think like there is something maybe when we get a bit later in terms of talking about its legacy, but I do suspect that's all tied to the MS3K thing, exactly. tied to the tracks thing. Uh, and you have people asserting ownership of it, but it, like, that again seems they're more trying to assert ownership of the MS3K-ness of it as opposed to the thing itself, maybe. Um, all right, before we jump into this point, a spoiler zone, um, one more question, Bernice, if you if listeners have not seen this already and they can find it on YouTube, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and watch? I get, I, get, I suspect we know what the answer will be. But. You know, it's in, the, it's in the listeners' hands. If you've got 70 minutes to kill and, I don't know, it's an alternative to having a root canal or something, do the root canal, but... <laughs> But maybe afterwards, if you're suitably doped up on codeine, maybe watch this and uh, it'll 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 swim by and it won't be too bad. Now, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, if you're a completist, the sort of trash cinema, probably you you'll find something. I mean, there are there are points of interest in it. There are moments that are so staggeringly inept that there's a kind of um, enjoyment in watching it unfold. But uh, it's certainly not one I personally am going to rush out and watch again. Um, and and Joey, what about yourself? Would you recommend it? Would you recommend the the MS3K, the Rift Tracks? What? How would you recommend watching? I think if you're going to watch it, definitely watch it with Rift Tracks. Like before I watched it, my husband said, "Oh, there's two great shots in this." And uh, afterwards, I said, "You were wrong. There is one. I don't even think that second one counts because it is of a painting. <laughs> <laughs> Although the painting is terrifying, as we'll discuss. But yeah, two great shots really isn't enough for me." But like definitely if you know what I mean, like like Bernice says, if you like if you love trash cinema, if you're a completist or just if you're curious, there are ways to watch it that are more enjoyable than just watching it dry. Um, and Andrew, I'm not sure if we've lost you. Are you there, Andrew? 
I'm here. Can you hear me okay? We, we can indeed. All right, cool. Would oh, okay, yeah. No, I turned off my video because it kept cutting out. I don't know why. No, I, 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 I would recommend that people watch it. You, you will not enjoy watching it. I don't think. I, I can. I, 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 um, I mean, there, there, there are kind of laugh out loud moments of it. The reason I'm recommending it though is just so that you have seen this. Yes. Then it be because I feel like there, 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 there are parts of this movie that I'm uh, kind of we're going to talk uh, about, and you maybe want the context. Yeah, for that. glad I've experienced and thinking back at them is like wow. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, the just the, the stuff that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, exactly. But um, no, it did. Like you're 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 not going to enjoy the experience. I don't think. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. You watch it. I like the eat your greens approach. Um, you're not going to enjoy it, but it will build. Can, character. can I just ask a very throw out a very quick question before we go to the spoilers? Which is, is it possible that Manos is a loyalist? Because. <laughs> Maybe this is me coming from the border. But there's large, there's large red hands everywhere, and I did wonder. Oh yes. Particularly on the paintings, red hands. His his wonderful outfit, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about. Giant red hand. Um, is there some sort it of? I don't know. Hand. It's it's a deep dive. I don't know, but I can, I have it written down. Is Manas a loyalist? Question mark. I, I mean, well, like- I I I live with a with a with a with a, with, a, with my fiance, a Tyrone woman. And well, course, um, we we're trying to re, yeah. re reappropriate the red hand. Um, take it back. So, so you think is Manos trying to reappropriate or reclaim that symbol? Is that he's from Tyrone and/or he's a loyalist? But it could uh, actually the Tyrone thing because Tyrone people do love wearing Tyrone tops, uh, GA tops. So that is is actually a very plausible explanation, Andrew. Yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah. The other side, the part that complicates this is I don't think he's a loyalist because a loyalist has to believe in a united kingdom. Mm -hmm. He employs Torgo, who, as far as I can tell, is also possibly a Confederate soldier. So I'm not entirely sure he would support secession in the United States if he were a red, white hand. But again... Although a lot of Confederates were of Ulster Scots descent. So, I mean, I'm just, Ah, you know... It all comes together. Okay. Well, with that in mind, then we're going to leave listeners to contemplate that as we segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! So, we John- have that whole loyalist thing planned for <laughs> just, at the, just at the end. <laughs> so, so Joey, do you think Manos is a loyalist? Now, what is Manos the Hand of Fate about for you? Um... I feel like last time I was on, you asked this question, and I went, "I don't know," <laughs> but this, but this time I really, I really don't know. I mean, it because it's it, it starts off kind of like something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it's people you know off the beaten track and they stumble upon, upon this house. But unlike a lot of those films, they invite themselves to stay for no real reason. It's not even dark, yeah, yeah. and it's and he clearly doesn't want them to stay. It's not like he's kind of luring them in going, oh, come in here. There's lots of... He's like, no, go away. The master doesn't like this. And then... He will not approve. Yeah, he will not approve. And it's like, (laughs) Torgo, act natural. Oh, my God. And and Michael's response is, no, we are definitely staying here with this creepy man and this possibly dead master who does not want us to stay. And what is Michael's response? I'll be grand. Once he he sees we're settled in, it'll be fine. And I mean, it's just... I mean, the production design is, is terrible, but the house itself looks so awful 
and the room that the wife is put in. And then she, at one point she goes to sleep. I mean, how does she manage to go to sleep? And then all this stuff is happening at the back and they never noticed that it, like, she didn't look at the window. It's just, and then, I mean, it's, is it a satanic ritual? Like, I don't, so much of it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's gas because the house looks terrible but not in a scary way. <laughs> like, yeah. It it looks terrible in a in a dilapidated way, but it doesn't look in, it, it doesn't like look inviting at all. Like it, it and apparently people have found it. I mean obviously it's in it's in ruins now, but people have kind of gone out to find it to take photos with it and stuff. And it's just it doesn't look like anybody lives there. It it doesn't even it doesn't look like a guest house. I just don't understand why these people show up and go, "We're staying here." We have to for some Can reason. I, if, if if I could put my acad- academic hat on, that's one of the things that things that I thought about this film was actually sort of interesting because it actually ticks an awful lot of the boxes of the classic backwoods horror trope. And one of the big things is in that is naive newcomers that are go are in a in a road trip and get uh, off the beaten track, which is the first ten minutes of this film to a jaunty, weirdly Brazilian jazz soundtrack. Yeah, a lot of flues. Yeah, and as Joey quite rightly described it as jaunty, um, inappropriately jaunty. Um, they get lost, they turn up on a local's doorstep, and this is a big trope. I mean, this is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those kids are trespassing. They should not have been on that land. Um, Kim Newman points out that in Texas it was legal at the time to shoot trespassers, so probably Leatherface and the gang were t- legally in the clear, <laughs> free and clear. I don't know if you're allowed to eat them. You probably are, but um, <laughs> who knows? I don't know. I don't study Texan law. But um, it actually has that idea of trespass and that they literally won't leave this poor guy's house. They're They're these urban people who are in a place they shouldn't be and don't pick up on the signals and your man's literally saying I don't want you here that happens in Texas Chainsaw Massacre you know you kids don't want to go messing around this old house so it actually in that sense anticipates a lot of stuff that happens in much much better films (laughs) not only are you allowed to eat people in Texas you can have it medium rare I mean, there there is that quote from The Simpsons: "Once they're in your house, anything you do to them is perfectly legal." Right? I feel like that's just what the the Sawyer family are kind of adhering to. Um, but yeah, like that—that's the thing that I find interesting about this. And very, Darren's going to be very generous to the movie for the moment here. It's that is there something here about like the the weird breakdown of order in the 60s and this fear of the erosion of kind of like masculinity and patriarchal authority because you have both michael as and and again i don't think this is intentional i don't think warren has the awareness for this to be intentional but you have michael being like the least effective father figure ever who like whose role largely consists of like insisting that his family stay at this creepy crappy hotel manned by this kind of or you know kind of house manned by this really creepy sniveling guy who's telling them that they can't stay there and on the other hand you also have the master whose primary role is to stand up and to tell his wives to like not like to listen to him and then they proceed to have incredibly gratuitous lengthy unnecessary and uncomfortable cat fights uh, in the sand uh, which we'll come back to but like I, I do wonder if you're being like very generous and perhaps in removing the idea of authorial intent from this movie entirely 
is it tapping into that fear of, well, it's the 60s and things are changing? Because you look at things like Manus and you see a lot of, say, you know, the kind of cults that were coming into the mainstream. Obviously, the Manson family wouldn't become news until three years later in 1969. But you did have Jim Jones happening. You did have the uh, Sullivanians, I think it was, as well. You had the, that, that sort of stuff bubbling away. And I do wonder, like, is that informing or shaping the movie in some sense? Is that perhaps explaining some of what we see with Michael's inexplicable behavior? The the problem, I think, with with kind of um, reading into things is that n- not the you have to kind of do all the work, like <laughs> with with this movie. It does it doesn't really kind of um, uh, like it doesn't sort of stoke any of those no. fears for me anyway because everything in the movie is so kind of placid and it's not just like Ma- michael is ineffective like ev- everything seems avoidable and resistible like the the, the the there there are no strong women either in in the movie they're kind of like uh, pushing each other around in a really kind of embarrassing and pointless fight but like you you don't get any sense of menace from from um, from anyone, you're not afraid of the dogs. Like there, 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 there's the sense that you could, that like you, you, you could as a city slicker go out to like the countryside and get lost in El Paso and meet all these people and kill them all, <laughs> and then just go home and it would be fine. Um, like the, the 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 it's it's that the movie doesn't doesn't really kind of touch any great fears because it's not a it's not a frightening movie, I guess. You just kind of turn and go um, if you're in this situation. I, I know I know what you're saying. Like, there's not, and I take obviously Bernice's point as well, but it's almost like there isn't enough of a justification. Usually you can kind of suspend your disbelief and go, oh yeah, okay, maybe, you know, maybe if it was late at night and the car wouldn't work, whatever. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's bright, it's sunny, and, and he clearly doesn't <laughs> want them there. Like, it just... But I disagree about it not being frightening because the painting is very frightening. The painting of the master. Which was painted by uh, the actor in question who is, um, what's his name? Tom Nyman. Tom Nyman, who is also responsible apparently for a lot of the art and set direction on the movie and the movie's preoccupation with hands. Because apparently as an artist, he was going through a phase at that point where he was fascinated with the idea of the human hand. And so that got folded in just because they had all the sculptures handy. Uh, Like... That's apparently the reason why this is so obsessed with hands. There's no authorial justification behind it. There's the cheap, cynical cash-in of, well, we already have a bunch of props arranged around hands, so let's make the movie about it. Um, which is, yeah, not again, speaks to, I think, like Joey and Bernice made the point of how incredibly cynical this seems in terms of being a cash-in. Because, I mean, one of the arguments that has been made about it, we mentioned the um, gratuitous 10 minute long catfight sequence in the sand that continues across multiple scenes. Apparently it's playing out. Is it meant to be titillating? That's that's one of the common readings of it is basically. So he arranged um, he was a very um, cynical operator was Mr. Warren. Apparently he submitted his co-star Diane Marie, who plays uh, Margaret. He submitted her to the Texas Beauty Queen pageant and to the Miss America pageant, uh, hoping that it would drum up publicity for the movie. He did not tell her this until after she had been accepted into both, um, which is a very classy move, if I do say so myself. It has been suggested that apparently he wanted to add those sequences. He did a Homer Simpson. (laughs) 
<laughs> but like apparently the plan was with a little cheap titillation you could sneak the movie into enough drive-ins to recoup the kind of 20 grand he'd spent on it um which also perhaps explains why you have the like teens who are necking um and like one of the most dis- so much is that like <laughs> necking like three or four times yeah well apparently, right. well, apparently one of the actors was meant to be one of the wives. Like, the, the the woman was supposed to be one of the wives, but she broke her leg. So she couldn't do any action sequences. So he came she up... She had to be in a passenger seat <laughs> for the entire... She had movie. to sit down. Yeah, she couldn't stand. Yeah. yeah. But apparently... Apparently, um, the company, the modeling agency that provided the master's wives would only let their clients appear in nightgowns that wouldn't seem immodest to an 80 year old. So you have this weird sequence where they're kind of wrestling in like the sexiest swimwear of like 1912. Um, It's it's very creepy and very uncomfortable. And again, speaks to that weird like opportunism and cynicism that you have there. Because the idea is, I think we kind of alluded to it earlier, that one of the things with horror movies and why horror movies are a genre that tend to like encourage independent filmmaking is because you can make them cheaply and you can generally recoup your costs as long as they're basically competent because people will go and see them. And there is something very um, opportunistic about certain aspects. Like Joey mentioned the sequence where Marguerite like goes asleep in the bedroom. Um, and she does that. She changes into a nighty to do it. And it feels very much like the only reason that happens is not because it makes sense in the context of the movie. It's because he wanted to include a shot of that of his co-star wearing a nighty um, so that it would seem. Well, there is a fear that like um, or even for people who live rurally that there are people kind of, you know, looking in the windows and that sort of thing, I guess. I feel like the but movie's well past that point, though. Prob- like, I feel like- probably not going to give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt, though. Yeah. But the, 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 that's something that can be done in in kind of like better movies and not feel so exploitative, where you 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 feel that where 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 a woman will rightly feel violated, you know, and that there is a a a a a, 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 um, a genuine terror in that quite aside from any titillation that anybody gets from us. Well, that's the kind as of an audience. voyeurism, the kind of Hitchcock stuff, and it's debatable about like, right. the balance between how much of that is, you know, like art and theme and how much of that is, as you point out, titillation. Here, I think the problem is that it is just cynical titillation or attempts at it. Yeah, not even not even done well, because it's not a particularly yeah. sexy nighty. As you said about the wives' nighties aren't sexy at all. I mean, in that situation... You would definitely sleep in your clothes. If you slept at all. Yeah. Because you'd want to yeah. leg it at the first sign of daylight. You know what I mean? You wouldn't. Why would you bother getting out of your clothes? This is going to waste time. When they were doing the incredibly lengthy catfights that went on for what felt like three hours. Um, and then kept sort of starting back up again as well. So every time you thought it was over, no, it was still going. But I kept thinking as well, I hope none of these women gets too close to a naked flame because there was kind of like a, a vaguely ceremonial flame fluttering and they're all wearing these diaphanous, um, it looked like pure nylon. So I would assume, um, you know, these, what was it, these make children's nighties out of this and then they banned it because people died because they stood next to fires and they went up like a Roman candle. So I kept thinking, let none of these women... Get too close to a naked flame, or I hope nobody's smoking on set, or they're all in big trouble. So that was the that was the inappropriate. The only real level of suspense I got while watching the film is I hope nobody goes on fire accidentally. But I mean, Um, it it wasn't. It wasn't even clear why they were fighting. I know they're supposed to. Were they supposed to be fighting over the master? I mean, he. 
I didn't really. Well, it was because some of them wanted to kill the child and some of them wanted to keep the child. I think. And like have the child grow. Really? Yeah, that was I believe it. Yeah, and they they repeat the line of dialogue over again. It's you can't kill the child. You can't kill the child. Or... It, that just it escalated very quickly because that was quite a reasonable discussion. I thought, oh, I must have missed something. There must be something else, like the raw sexual magnetism uh, of the master. Actually, really. makes the ending of the film really creepy. Then I don't know because little Debbie ends up as one of the brides. So there's all kinds of like really really dodgy implications there about child, actual a small child being his bride so played by the played by the uh, the uh, the child is the daughter master of the master kid, yeah. yeah which adds i think he suggests that like um I'm, I might be wrong but i feel like at some point he suggests that like when she is of age um uh, she will also be my wife <laughs> it's like kind of, i've enslaved all these people but i'm not terrible like that um, yeah, I won't go that yeah. far. <laughs> he, he he has a line. Well, yeah. that, that, no, that that is the debate that they have. Like the the women, the wives are firmly in the camp of well, kill her or keep her and let her become and grow up and to be a wife, which seems like it's you know missing a lot of middle ground and a lot of implications and stuff. But I'm kind of well, glad that it's... someone will have to raise her. Like she won't Don't just go asleep. Won't they just go asleep again? Presumably. Yeah, empty was... concrete shed with an altar. Like, what would you do all day? They're just there's just pillars and an altar and and like concrete. It's it's we a very low bed. stimulation environment. <laughs> then no wonder they're catfighting. Yeah, they're bored. <laughs> they're like, what else are we gonna do? <laughs> Violence gets it out of them. It's like Fight Club for women. We mentioned kind of how they, I, I I think Joey said that it escalated quite fast. I think the thing is that there. There is already a tension between like the older ones and the younger ones. I think they've they've been like itching for a fight. That's very um, generous. <laughs> and you have the sequence with Torgo. Like, Tor- Torgo, Torgo does kind of communicate that like the older wives are on the way out because you can't have this movie without that strain of misogyny running through it, apparently. But Torgo's like, even the master doesn't want you anymore, and all this sort of stuff happening as well. Yeah, no, there's a there's a lot, uh, a lot there. I think perhaps the, we never get to see the kitchen. Maybe the kitchen's really nice. Does it have a kitchen? It, it has like he two mentions doors. Torgo mentions the kitchen. Okay, because it has it has two doors. One of them leads to the sacrificial altar that nobody checks for beforehand, and which you apparently can't see when you're driving Maybe up to the house. Maybe that's the kitchen. And can't see from the <laughs> window either. Yeah. And you also they have, have they the have a little barbecue against the wall that you don't see. I uh, um, I like that they repeat the shot of him at the window. They want to make sure that both of them get a good look at her through the window in case it wasn't clear. Like it's so. Someone thought that was a great shot. Someone thought, yeah, that's really scary. Just uh, at the window. Okay, so you mentioned two shots. You mentioned two shots which you thought were great. So the first one was obviously the portrait, which I think you pointed out. I didn't think they were great. (laughs) I didn't think they were great. My husband thought they were great, and I told him no. (laughs) So the first one was the painting. The second one was when he opens his arms to reveal the robe with the hands. (laughs) That's pretty. I, I. I'll, I'll give it that I was like okay I'll give you that one that was a pretty cool shot but I don't think a shot of a painting that's held for way too long and then returned to over and over again counts as a good shot I think it's more the music that makes it if any we should mention by the way that like because of how shoddily this movie's put together and it's been speculated that one of the reasons why the movie opens with nine minutes of driving is because that sequence was originally supposed to be the opening credits but somebody forgot to actually print them to the film 
So instead you have the sequence where the credits should be, but just like driving and music happening over it. Did nine minutes of opening credits in a 70 minute film. I mean, like, what are they, Steven Spielberg? Do you know that? And then the title is such a shock. It's like, why is Manos in quotation marks? Is it like, remember Hitchcock made Tippi Hendren put her name in quotation marks because he was a controlling arsehole. Um, He made great films, but he was a controlling arsehole. Um, You know, but was it a Tippi Hedren type thing? Manos. Yeah, it was... It was like it was a made-up word, but it's not a made-up word. It was just Spanish for hands. Um, (laughs) Hands the hands of fate. Um, Also, like... Would you believe... Sorry, this is the week I've had. (laughs) I knew it had a hand connection. I never consciously went, oh, Spanish for hands. Texas. Yeah. I mean, like, in Texas, you can hear gunshots from Mexico. Like, that's just how close (laughs) they are to the border in El Paso, apparently. Um in one of the movies like again less convincing sequences and again that whole sequence happens because the lights that they had on the cameras would only go a couple of meters in front so the actors could only literally wander that far before disappearing into the dark so that's why the police officers appear to only look in the immediate three meter radius of their police car torch attached to the car yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, we should also mention as well the moths like the lights that they used while shooting attracted moths and you can see continuously throughout the film the moths flying into shot and kind of like whacking into the actors at various points as well. Um, did any of um, those moths die? Because if they did, this is like a cannibal holocaust type situation with actual <laughs> animal cruelty. And sacrifice, like Apocalypse Now, like to sacrifice the bull in Apocalypse Now. Also, like we mentioned, because we mentioned that the teens who are necking and the, the, the appear three times, the movie keeps coming back to them. I just want to give a shout out to the song that is playing on the radio uh, which is Do The Thing is apparently the chorus of it, which is like w- one of the most veiled innuendos I have ever heard in a movie because it's apparently like a makeout song. And the title of the song is Do The Thing. Um, that's it. Everybody's doing the thing now. Yeah. <laughs> it's so wild kind of like rage that that has taken over your children. They're all doing the thing. <laughs> They're driving out to the desert and doing the thing. Um all right, then. Is there anything else we want to talk about with this movie? Anything that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at any of us we want to kind of I want to say something. The, the, I watched it on YouTube with subtitles, and subtitles are auto-generated. So some of the <laughs> cool um, names for, like, Torgo, one of them was um, Tonto. Um, another was Fargo. Best one was Doggo. Um, I, 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 I did enjoy that. Uh, oh, we should mention, I think Joey mentioned it earlier on, but it's worth stressing. Um, Torgo was given prosthetic, or the actor, uh, John Reynolds, was given prosthetic legs that were designed to make him look like a satyr, a half goat, half man. Uh, but apparently they did not work. And as you point out, caused physical pain while he was walking. And that is why the character walks as oddly as he does. Um, and actually, in terms of Torgo, we talked about him a little bit earlier on. And again, this is Darren as Andrew says, doing the work the movie should be doing itself. But is there something in there about like the breakdown of the nuclear family and the idea of Torgo as the child of the master and the wives and stuff? So the idea is that you you have this reflection of the you have the nuclear family with like Michael, Margaret, and Debbie, and then you have the master and his wives, and you have Torgo as the child, and that kind of idea playing out there again in the backdrop of the 60s when you know you're coming out of the 50s you got this radical social stuff happening again probably giving the movie too much credit but like is that what's happening with torgo is anything happening with torgo you could maybe arguably say they're kind of like a 
anticipating like a, a, they're kind of a countercultural sect of themselves, you know, uh, polyamory is clearly practiced. <laughs> um, you know, you could you could argue, you could see the master as a kind of a proto Manson figure, kind of anticipating that by about three years. I think it reminded me as well. There's there's a really incredible film from. I the mid seventies called Race with the Devil. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it by Jack Starrett. Warren Oates is in it and Peter Fonda. And it's a devil worship film set in Texas. And it actually has kind of a, an almost a vaguely similar plot to this, where it's about two couples that go on a holiday in an RV and decide to drive across Texas, but they, they witness something they shouldn't have witnessed and they're pursued by a satanic cult. But the interesting twist in that is that it turns out that a lot of the seemingly respectable people of, of sort of backwoods Texas are actually like the local sheriff are actually caught up in this cult. And it has a, I won't go into it, it has an incredible, tremendously downbeat ending. But in a weird way, it actually has, um, it has that same basic premise, which is backwoods Texas um, satanic cult and the idea that horrible things can happen in, in kind of in rural locales where nobody really bothers to go. Um, you know, and the police are either in and in or too stupid to cop on to what's happening, as in this case. So, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying in a long-winded way is go see Race with the Devil instead, because it's brilliant. But um, but in a strange way, I think I think you could argue, what you were saying, Darren, that, that um, this film does anticipate, again, what much better films and much more coherent films, importantly, <laughs> um, and, and films that actually have something to say. Um, I do much more successful. Yeah, because you do. You have all the tropes, like the the idea that like the lodge is this liminal space. The idea, like it's fading into and out of reality, or the idea that that road doesn't go anywhere. The characters yeah. repeatedly state yeah. as almost if like, like it's it's a, a parallel metaphor. universe kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So it's almost as if we're trying to make a point here, although the movie can't really land what that point is. But uh, Joey, Bernice, anything else? Like with regard- Bernice, you have pages of notes. What is the highlight? What like what? I mean, I had to get the Tyrone connection off my chest. Um, that was the main thing. Um, I'm trying to think. Was there anything else I wanted to mention? Uh, one thing I'd say is there's an awful lot of repetition in this film for a 70 minute film. By God, it's repetitious. Uh, I don't know what you guys made of the many many scenes where clearly it, it, it seemed to me almost like terrible improv where people would say something and then there'd be a tremendously long pause and they'd kind of look. Clearly, they were waiting for the 30, 32 second. Um, filter right at that stage right that's it even within a very short running time there's an awful lot of dead air in this film where actually nothing is happening it 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 has that i'm sure you guys if you've ever been to like um amateur theatricals and some some of them are brilliant you know like fair play to people but i i've definitely watched some terrible bad plays i've been involved in some terrible bad plays um but (laughs) But it has that feeling of, of one of the worst, of, of a tremendously bad theatrical production where people are just standing around on stage waiting for the next character to walk in. Um, so I guess that's that's a mood that it has. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I think we haven't quite covered enough of the weirdness of its use of sound. Like, I think sound is where it gets, like, the image is terrible. The, the, the props are not great. The acting is questionable. But I, I'd argue, like, the sound is where it really goes off the wall because, as we mentioned uh, it was only shot uh, on cameras that could not record dialogue. So a lot of the dialogue was dubbed, I think, by three actors. Like, there are three people doing mm. all of the voices uh, in the movie. And the soundtrack will start and stop at really disconcerting points. Like, Torgo's theme seems to only play when he's moving, as if he has an accordion, like, between his legs. Um, there's, like, a moment, it's really uncanny, really, mo- probably for me, the most horrific moment in the movie is when we're watching the kind of like teenage couple make out 
and they're playing this really sappy jazz music in the background. And then it cuts to an intense close-up and the jazz music has stopped, but they're continuing to make out for about 32 seconds, coincidentally, in intense close-up in nothing but silence. Um, And it's really disconcerting. It's like watching a Chaplin movie all of a sudden, except really graphic and really intense. Um, it's it's very, very, very disconcerting. Um, we did mention the kind of battle over the movie's legacy, uh, because obviously there are debates about the copyright, the fact that it's out of copyright, and the fact that it was brought to attention by MS3K. Um, there are a couple of, of people who have claimed or tried to take control of the narrative. So you have Hal Warren's son, um, who's tried to assert control of the copyright, I think, by trying to claim that he owns the script rather than the film itself. Uh, he has not succeeded in doing so. You've Jackie Naiman, who um, is genuinely actually seems to care about the movie and her father's legacy, which is like she will. She does a lot of interviews, a lot of press about it. She does a lot of attention raising for it. And she talks about how like it was a bonding experience with her and her father when she was younger. And then when it was rediscovered, it was a way for her to reconnect with her father as well. Um, and then you have um, the, the very weird. And I'm not sure if Joey as a uh, you knew the MS. 3k mst3k uh, i don't know if you know about the riff track stuff um but uh rupert talbot munch senior um who is obsessed with creating a manos sequel featuring the surviving cast plus in the words of writer jake rosson musical numbers break dancing and as many as 120 brides in an erotic grappling session um apparently uh. yeah yeah apparently munch is obsessed with torgo um and he managed yeah yeah there's there's a number of warning signs for you there he managed to like muscle his way into the m the riff tracks live recording of um manos by asserting a copyright claim at the last minute when it was too late to postpone or challenge and managed to use that to leverage his appearance into the live riff tracks recording in 2012 now, that has been removed from all subsequent DVDs and public recordings of it. But apparently, according to anybody who saw that, uh, it is one of the most uncomfortable things they have ever seen. And they were there for a screening of Manos, The Hands of Fate. Um, so you can only imagine how how weird that is. But yeah, so that's that's the movie's legacy. Um, all right, then. I think that about wraps it up. Then, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already with regards to Manos, The Hands of Fate. Andrew, Joey, Bernice? Well, it's funny you should mention a sequel because I actually wrote down if they ever did a remake. I don't know why they would do that. Robert Pattinson would definitely play Torgo. I mean, you can see it. And I'm sure he'd do he, very I'm, well, yeah. And I'm sure he'd wear the legs and everything, you know, just to really get into character. I just could totally see it. Watching it, I was like, yeah, Pattinson. This is a real Pattinson kind of vibe. <laughs> he, he, he wore the same um, outfit in Tenet. Yeah. The, the <laughs> kind of like sweaty beige um, suit. I mean, it did fit a bit better, to be clear. Um, but like, well, we should... We, I would say I enjoyed like, this well, film should... more than I enjoyed Tenet. So there's... <laughs> 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 All right. And backwards. the dialogue. I could hear much more of the dialogue than I could with Enton made by Christopher Nolan in the past ten. Oh, Tenet. Wow. Tenet is so overrated, my God. Yeah, well, the Christopher Nolan's cam- cameras also don't pick up sound. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and, they, 
<laughs> I mean, he also doesn't do long takes. So they probably only record for 38 seconds, 32 seconds. But yeah, like we should note that there have been a variety of kind of spin-off, uh, like from Manos, The Hands of Fate. Um, Munch didn't get to make his Togo-centric sequel uh, or Torgo-centric sequel, unfortunately. But there was a prequel called Manos, The Rise of Torgo, written and directed by David Roy. Um, there was also Manos Returns, which was written and directed by uh, Tunisia Atomic uh, as well. Um, released, both released in 2018, uh, both of which are apparently terrible, but not necessarily the same kind of terrible as this. So the movie does kind of live on in its own weird and uncomfortable kind of way, um, I think. All right, then. Um, so what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. It could be something you're enjoying at the moment, something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie. So to give Bernice and Joey a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. I should say that Nyman gave Warren a hand. Um, but that's that's barely a Robocop reference. For in terms of recommendations, I'll I'll recommend um, a, a couple of books that I read lately, um, which people are already probably aware of. They're not um, huge revelations or anything. But one is Moneyball, and the other is the 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 Constant Gardener. Uh, Moneyball is the story of uh, Billy Bean the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. Another kind of um, uh, st- st- story about um, when when the odds are against you financially and um, what what can be done. The ultimate outsider arc, Arch, you know? It's like baseball is yeah. outsider arc, basically, is what that is. And, and yeah, and, and the Constant Gardener is um, uh, uh, similarly. Although I think the movie uh, maybe, maybe accomplishes this better, but... Um, going um kind of david versus goliath i guess um where goliath is a uh, big pharma so yeah no i'd i'd i'd, I'd recommend that i'd i'd i i i think i had both of them on audiobook I so it doesn't really it really count i was like in the gym <laughs> <laughs> listening to them have you um have you seen the adaptation moneyball from bennett miller starring jonah hill and um brad pitt Yes, yeah, yeah, I, okay. I, I enjoyed it quite a lot, and I, I, I thought it was fairly kind of faithful to us. Um, uh, One of Jonah Hill's two Oscar nominations. Fun fact: twice Oscar nominated. Exactly. Jonah Hill. Yeah. The, the, the. Um, I feel like the, the book works quite well, um, as like a movie. I feel like you, 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 and I don't think it's just because it was an audio book because I've, I've, I've read other kind of Michael Lewis books like, um. Uh, liar's poker, um, and I felt like um, it's it's probably no uh, mystery why 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 a lot of those um, why a lot of Michael Lewis books become uh, movies like the 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 Big Short, I guess, um, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I'd recommend both of those, and Joe- and maybe the uh, the movies <laughs> of each. <laughs> why not? Why They're not? both good. They are. Um, I think was it uh, Rachel Vice won for the Constant Gardener, right? That was her Oscar. That's win. right. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. Ray Fiennes was also quite good in it, from what I remember. Ray Fiennes is perfect as well for that character. For the 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 the, the kind of. Um... So you'd say he's better than Fine. <laughs> A lot of British actors are good at that role, where it's like unexpected kind of um, hero, unexpectedly steely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like like Colin Firth can do a version of that too, where he's 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 not meant to be the romantic lead kind of, and and it's very much like that in the book too. Anyway, sorry, I've I've spoken too much. Um, Joey, what would you recommend for listeners related to the movie, unrelated to the movie? 
Um, by the time this comes out, Deadly Cuts will be out. So everyone go watch Deadly Cuts if you're in Ireland. It's such a great little dark comedy. It's so fun and it's so funny. And I really wanted to find an audience over here because I feel like we're really going to get the humor. I saw it for the US release. They didn't really get it, I don't think. <laughs> um, maybe hopefully one day they will, we, we, you know, with Derry Girls being so popular. But yeah, definitely go watch that. Yeah, no, I, I quite enjoyed Deadly because I saw it for the Dublin Film Festival as well. It's the, is it Rachel Carey's first directorial debut, actually? Feature length directorial debut. Yeah, it's um, good. It's well worth checking out. Um, and Bernice, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, yeah, um, well, I'm enjoying at the moment The Squid Game on Netflix, which um, I have to admit I put off watching for yes. about a week because I thought I've seen Battle Royale, I've read Battle Royale, I've seen The Hunger Games, I've read The Hunger Games. Do so I need to see another, you know, about this premise? But it's so well done. And uh, I have only an episode five, so nobody say anything, please. But it is so tremendously well made that I'm loving it. And I would also say just quickly that I finally got around this week to watching a classic 70s British horror film, a, a, a classic of telekinetic horror uh, and I'm a fan of anything with people with telepathy. It always works out badly, telepathy or telekinesis or pyrokinesis. Stephen King fans will know this already, of course. But it's called The Medusa Touch. And it stars Richard Burton as a man who's a mis- misanthrope who has the power to cause disasters with his mind. And it is tremendous on every single level. It has every great British character actor you can imagine. It has an inexplicably French police inspector who's on an exchange program. And it's, it's, it's actually a very good performance from Burton who's genuinely, he's got a look in his eyes that only a man who's been married and divorced to, from Elizabeth Taylor on several occasions would have. Um, he's been through a lot of stuff and um, as I'm sure Taylor was. And it's just, it's brilliant. It holds up so well and it's actually genuinely uh, chilling. It has a fantastic ending and um, I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. I, I enjoyed it as, you know, it's probably one of the more enjoyable film watching experiences I've had this year. So I recommend the Medusa Touch. Fantastic. Um, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but uh, I got it on DVD from a mate of mine, but um, it's worth seeking out. It's really, really good. I feel like Battle Royale movies are, are kind of um, always good, even when they're bad. Um, and that's. I have a soft spot. Like I love the hunt. I thought the hunt was brilliant. It was one of my favorite films. What from about last year. What, Schwarzenegger's Running Man? Is that also oh. one? Lesser Schwarzenegger, but 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 still, it's 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 both a Schwarzenegger movie and a, a battle royale movie and an eighties so. future movie. So you're on board, yeah. He's got his best ever jumpsuit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, we should mention, I just had a quick th- uh, check there. The Medusa Touch is available uh, in the US on Tubi and Pluto TV. Uh, it is available in the US and on the UK to rent or buy from Amazon. I cannot find it available anywhere in Ireland for our Irish listeners, so you may have to go for old-fashioned physical media, uh, unfortunately, on that one. All right, then, and for recommendations for myself, um, I guess because we mentioned it, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, I have been watching, like, horror franchises uh, in lockdown, and I have to say, watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise was an exercise in very, very, very quickly diminishing returns. Um, but I, yeah, two is so good. Two, two is solid. Two, like, it's that thing... What typically happens, like again and again, I'm generalizing here, but in terms of like those franchises is you typically get like a good first movie, a solid second movie, and then a third movie that is better than it has any right to be and is only recognized as such in years afterwards. So like Nightmare on Elm Street has that kind of structure where one is phenomenal, two is this kind of weird closeted kind of gay metaphor, and then three is actually really, really good on its own terms. And then you have like uh, Halloween where one is, you know, fantastic and phenomenal, 
two is John Carpenter gets really tired of the director, decides to write the thing himself and basically ghost shoot it and turns out incredibly competent for a cash in movie. Three is phenomenal. And then the series just kind of disappears with Chainsaw. You get one and two. Two is interesting, but then it just kind of disappears into like the vast wilderness of kind of reboots and how much can we pay or the army to show up and yell at people. But yeah, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is phenomenal, and I would wholeheartedly recommend that. And also because uh, this is coming out the twenty second November, twenty second October, um, it's a good weekend for movies. Go see Dune in cinemas; it's opening this weekend, and go see The French Dispatch in cinemas, which is opening this weekend. They are both great, and two very different sides of Timothy Chalamet. Um, and that is a nice segue into uh, talking about what we're going to be talking about next week. He because, he, he doesn't have two sides because he he doesn't have a backside. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. I actually look forward to talking about... I guess he's le- left and right are the two sides. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. I look forward to talking about Dune with you, because I-, I think there is some interesting material to discuss on that front. Um, because of Dune's release schedule, and because Dune is... He's a beautiful man, by the way, just just to be clear. <laughs> like, just because it, it proves that like you don't need a bum to, 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 you know, to, to do grace. Thank you, Andrew. You're an inspiration to us all. <laughs> But what I was, and, and now I've said but a lot. What I was going to say was that yes, we will because Dune recently made the two fifty. Uh, because it kind of snuck onto the list, we will be covering it in hopefully a midweek episode with the wonderful Jen Gann and the fantastic Stacey Groudon. So we'll be dropping that midweek a special this just in episode covering Dune. But then next week for Saturday the thirtieth of October, coming back right before Halloween, Joey and Bernice will be back with us to talk about arguably the finest horror movie on the 250, perhaps the finest horror movie ever made, Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, We'll be back next week. Thank you so much, Bernice. Thank you so much, Joey. Uh, Bye. Thank you so much, guys. Ooh, rattling chains. Freaky door. Freaky door.